Welcome to the Faith Christian Church Podcast. You're listening to a message from one of our many gatherings that we have throughout the week. For more information on service times, ways that you can be a part of the work that God is doing in our communities, and so much more, you can visit our website at faithchristianwi.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the message. That was a really cool video. I had not actually gotten to see that video yet. So um, we love our uh, children's ministry here at Faith Christian Church. Um, Ashley Waldner does an awesome job here in Reedsburg. Amen. Um, we, we also love uh, Pastors uh, Jordan and his wife Carrie. There are um, children's leaders out in Moss, and the, the three of them really do a, a great job um, with uh, children before they kind of pass them off to me here. Um, and then I get to <clears throat> try not to mess with their heads too much. Um, so anyways, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking about uh, Kings of Prophets. We're in our final week. Um, I get to kind of wrap up the series for us today. Uh, it's been a, a great series this summer, looking at many of the different Kings of Prophets through, uh, through the Old Testament. Um, we've looked at King Solomon, King David. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Ken brought a great message on the prophet Jeremiah. Um, it's, it's been a really cool series just seeing how Israel and Judah sort of formed, how they sort of uh, uh, went through um, their history before the exile, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit today, but um, I want to uh, start out, ha- have you ever had a time where maybe you were cooking dinner, making a meal or something, and you got to a point where something went wrong? And you had to decide to throw it away and start over, or just commit and deal with it. Now see, for me, I think I'm, I, I make a pretty good rack of ribs, all right? I, I made them in oven, took a few hours, and my wife said that they were some of the best ribs she ever ate. For the life of me, I'm terrible at cooking ground beef, which is almost as easy as bacon, which is the only way to screw up bacon is to forget that it's there. So I, I, a few weeks ago, I tried making spaghetti for my family. I'm thinking I'm going to make this awesome meat, uh, red meat sauce. It's going to be delicious. I'm cooking the ground beef, and I, I, I had to go take care of something else for a minute and came back and realized the meat was burning. And I was at this point, I was thinking, it's okay. I'll, I'll just cover up the flavor. I'll, I'll add in some spices. I'll put in the sauce. It'll be fine. And it was terrible. It was probably the worst spaghetti I've ever done in my life, which is sad because spaghetti is really easy to cook. So that was fun. So there, was, there comes a point where you have to decide if something is too far gone to fix it. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, too far gone. Too far gone. Today we're going to look at King Josiah. He was one of the last kings of Judah before they were uh, exiled into Babylon. And uh, we're going to look at the, the nation of Judah and um, how they had gotten to that point of seemingly being too far gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. God, we thank you for your word that you've given us. You've given us this special revelation of your son that we get to know you, that we get to uh, go deeper into relationship with you. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us today, that you would open up our hearts and minds to what you would speak to us. God, that we would receive something from your word today that we could uh, take away with us, some nugget of truth that we would not leave the same people we came in as. God, we praise you. We lift up this day to you that you'd receive the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So quick background. Uh, the last few months we've been looking at the kings and prophets of, of the Old Testament. Um, at this point, we're in the book of 2 Kings, and we see that Israel has been divided into two different nations. We have the northern kingdom, uh, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, remember, Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and they each became basically a, a different tribe of Israel. And 10 of the tribes split off and became the nation of Israel. And then two of the tribes, Benjamin and Judah, combined and became the nation of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. And by this point, uh, in, in 2 Kings 17, the northern kingdom, Israel, is gone. They have been taken over by Assyria. They've all been led into captivity. They're kind of uh, kaput for the moment. Um, in 2 Kings 18, we learned about the king Hezekiah, who was a righteous god. If you go through First and Second Kings, you'll start getting into this pattern where you see this guy was king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. This guy was king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. This guy was king. He did worse than the kings before him. And it just keeps going. And then eventually we get to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18, who did right. He got rid of all the evil in the land. And everything was going well while he was king. Then he died, and his son became king and did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you get back into this little cycle. His son Manasseh was wor It says that he was worse than all the kings before him. Worse than and anyone that had come before. He undid everything Hezekiah did and actually made things even worse. It got to the point while he was king that God at one point said that I, will, I, I declare disaster for Judah. Judah will be taken away into captivity. Manasseh eventually dies, and his son Ammon becomes king for two years. He is then killed by his servants because he was a terrible king as well. And then one thing led to another. His son Josiah is made king. And that's where we find ourselves today in the book of 2 Kings chapter 22. So we're going to read some of that today. Um, let's go ahead and read it. It is 2 Kings 22 verse 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidah, the, uh, the daughter of Adiah from Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn from doing what is right. Another translation says he did not turn to the right or to the left. We'll get back to that later. Verse 3, it says, In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary, to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money of the gatekeepers that the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple. But don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. How nice would it be to have people working for you that you could just trust with the money that they don't even have to count it? That would be nice. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan, 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 I'll keep going with that, went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. Just a side note, he gave me this thing. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. So let's go back and look at a couple things. First of all, 
Josiah became king when he was eight years old. Anyone here have uh, a kid who's eight years old at the moment? Pastor Ken? It'd be like Isaiah, your son, becoming king of an entire nation. <laughs> All right. So he's king. He is the ruler of at least a million, if not several million people by this point, because remember the northern tribes had, had taken off. They were in captivity. The Bible says that he does right in the Lord's sight, like his great-grandfather Hezekiah did. If you read the account of Josiah's story in the book of 2 Chronicles, uh, chapter 34, it gives a little more detail about his childhood. It said he became king at the age of eight, as we all know. It says when he was 16 years old, so eight years later, that was when he began to seek the Lord of David, the Lord God of Israel. That's when he really started to dig into who is this God I've, I've heard a little bit about. Because remember, everything was evil before that, right? Manasseh had screwed up. Ammon had screwed up. So is, uh, Judah was pretty messed up at the time. Uh, remember that a group of people had essentially held a little uh, a rebellion, and they killed the king. So you have to imagine that those first eight years, he was probably trying to please the people a little bit to make sure he didn't you know, die. Probably would be, would be good to not die at the ripe old age of 8 to 16. So he is 16 years old. He begins to seek God. Four years later, when he's 20, he begins to purge the land of some of the evil. He starts getting rid of the, uh, the idols, the temples of Baal. He gets rid of these things called the high places. Now, I had no idea what high places were. So I do, of course, go to the, um, one of the greatest sources for Bible knowledge, Pastor Paul Shirek in Mostyn. I asked him, what were high places? And, and um, the way that it was explained to me is that... Um, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the center of worship, right? Jerusalem was the place that the uh, people of Israel would go to to make their offerings to God. They'd go to the temple. They would, they would give their offering. They would worship God there. What eventually happened is that some of the people were saying, why do we need to go to Jerusalem and worship God? We could just build an altar here in our city. And so they went up to a high place of the city and built an altar there, which would have been not, not good to God, because he said, come to Jerusalem and do it. So what uh, Josiah did, he tore down the high places. He got rid of all these places of false worship that had eventually become places they worshipped different gods like uh, Ammon. They started worshipping Baal, Asherah. We'll learn about those guys a little bit later. So he got rid of all those. Over the next six years, he begins repairing the temple. At this point, it says that Hilkiah, who was the high priest at the time, found a scroll, the book of the law. This, this book of the law was pretty, pretty special. Um, they, the, the, a, a number of scholars think that the book of the law was the book of Deuteronomy, which is a really interesting read. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to take a look at, at uh, Deuteronomy. It's the story of the end of the life of Moses. Everyone remembers Moses, Red Sea, put a staff in, psh, water splits. That Moses. It's the end of his life, and he's, the first few chapters, he recounts their story, um, getting out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, and finally they're settled in the uh, area of Moab, right before they enter the promised land. And Moses gives them this whole list of things. He gives them different principles for God living. He talks about the Ten Commandments. Uh, he talks about different laws for worship, which is a really uh, interesting point, being in the temple. He talks about how to appoint and regulate different leaders, um, how people should respond to one another. Uh, there's two chapters on blessings and curses for those who either keep or break the law, which I'm sure Josiah took a uh, great note of. And then finally, 
Moses says, obey God, in essence. At this point, what does Josiah do when he hears all this stuff? Rips his, rips his clothes, tears his robe. I had to, I, I had to look this up because I couldn't totally wrap my mind around why someone would be so upset that they'd tear their clothes. Has anyone ever been so uh, emotionally pushed to a certain point that they had to give some sort of physical reaction to it? Do we have any fans of The Office in here? Okay. Remember the episode where uh, <coughs> Jim steals Andy's phone and tosses it in the ceiling? And Andy gets so upset over it, he's so angry, he punches the wall. I imagine that it could be something to that effect, that Josiah was so upset that they were so far off the mark, that he saw the, the, the book of Deuteronomy, he saw what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be worshiping, how they're supposed to be following God. And it's all laid out from right there, and he realizes, we've messed up. He's so grieved, it says that he tears his clothes. Tearing of clothes was a public and powerful expression of grief in the ancient world. In fact, it was so powerful that they actually made a ritual of it. It was called Kariah. Everyone say Kariah. Kariah. This was a ritual that was usually done at a funeral service, where the rabbi would cut um, the garments of the, the people in mourning, and then those people would recite some words relating to God's sovereignty. And while external expression is good, this, this was a, a, a way for them to say, I'm in deep mourning, I'm in deep grieving, I've lost something, someone dear to me. And while external expression is good, there's something even greater. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. While external expression is good, true sorrow of sin and repentance of the heart is even greater. The book of Joel talks about this in chapter 2. It says, literally says, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. I think a lot of Christians get in their head that God is waiting to punish people, that he is sitting in heaven waiting for someone to mess up so he can say, told you so, boom, lightning. That's the exact opposite, though. It says here he's, he's merciful. He's eager to relent. He doesn't want bad things to happen. He really doesn't. There comes a point in our lives, if we feel that we're too far gone, where we have to tear our hearts, not our shirts. Amen. I wonder if there's a time in your life when you felt you were at that point, when you felt like you were so far gone that there was no way to get back. Uh, for me, it was eight years ago, actually, this month, that I had just finished all my, uh, my classes for college. I was just getting ready to start student teaching. And uh, I had just gotten out of a, a relationship um, with a young lady that was not God-honoring. I had a number of other things going on in my life, and at that point, it was about... I felt about as low as I could possibly get at that, at that stage of life. Um, spiritually, I felt completely dead. I, I felt so far from God that I thought I was too far gone to come back. And um, about a week or so later, I, I, I was away from home. I was uh, in a, a week-long VBS camp um, for, for young people with special needs. And um, at the time, I was reading a book, um, ironically called Waking the Dead, which is um, funny because uh, I love it when God works things out like that, that when we feel spiritually dead, he wants to bring us back to life. Amen. 
The cha- it, it took me a whole, a whole week to read one chapter. Now, I'm not a slow reader. So for me to take one week on one chapter, it had to be a pretty intense chapter. What I was reading at that time was the chapter on, it, the book was called Waking the Dead by John Eldridge. And the chapter was about restoration of the heart. That was my tearing of the clothes, my tearing of the heart moment. That was my 180 that I saw God do in my life. That, I think, is a little bit of how Josiah felt when he saw that Judah needed a major course correction. He saw that they had been messing up for decades, and he thought for the last 10 years that he was doing it right, and then he saw that he wasn't quite on the mark either. So what did he do? I won't put it on the screen, but if you continue reading in the book of 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 12 to 20, what he does is he has his court officials go and inquire of God. He says, what are we going to do? Go ask God what we should do because of this great wrath that God has for us because we done messed up. They go and see this prophetess named Huldah, and she tells them, yep, God's going to bring disaster. He's going to let Israel be taken away in captivity. But, this is the really cool part, she says that God had said, because Josiah, because you've repented, because you've humbled yourself, God said that you will not see disaster in your life. It's still going to have to come because Judah really screwed up. But because you've humbled yourself, it won't happen in your lifetime. You won't see it. See, when we repent, God will relent. If you keep reading into chapter 23, you'll see that after this happens, Josiah and Judah enter into a new covenant with God. They enter uh, into a covenant with God saying, we're only going to follow God. We're only going to obey him. We're not going to turn to the left or to the right. We're just going to go the way that he wants us to go. And in verse 4, he begins a second purge of Judah. So he thought he got it all the first time when he was uh, 20, but he didn't quite get it all. So it says he goes and gets rid of all the abominations in the land. He tears down all the altars, all the idols, gets rid of everything. He grind, I think most of them he grinds into dust and throws them to the wind. Like he really makes sure that it's all destroyed this time. And... Uh, in, in these verses, there's a couple things I want to take a look at. The first one, he, it says that he defiled a place, uh, a thing called Topheth. Everyone say Topheth. Topheth. Sounds like something you'd say if you had a really bad lisp. Topheth. This was in a place called the Valley of Hinnom, which in hindsight, I, wish, I really wish I had given the uh, map uh, the, so that you could actually see this. But um, if you are in Jerusalem, and maybe Tom Lyons would be a, a good one to ask because he's actually physically been there. If you're in Jerusalem out on Mount Zion, there's a big valley that runs right in the middle of it. That's the Valley of Hinnom. And what happens there, or what happened there, is that there was a big altar to the Ammonite god Molech. Now, Molech was a really interesting god because he was the one that people would sacrifice children to. So, not a cool guy. It says that Josiah went and defiled the place, meaning he made it completely unclean. He made it so that Jews could never go there again. He made it so that they wouldn't feel the need to go there again because it was so evil, because it was so far from God there. See, this place uh, was eventually a burial ground. This valley became a place that they would throw the dead bodies when the nation of Babylon invaded. 
because there was nowhere else to bury them, so they tossed them into the Valley of Hinnom. By the time the New Testament gets around, because this place does come back, the Valley of Hinnom is a trash dump. It's a place that they would throw anything that was considered waste. They would throw dead bodies there. They would throw any average, everyday waste and trash in there. Um, People who were convicted of... uh, Convicted criminals would be sent there. Like, it was a pretty bad place. The Valley of Hinnom is how it's it's done in Hebrew, but in Greek, this might sound a little more familiar, it's called Gehenna. If if you don't remember what Gehenna was, in the book of Mark, chapter 9, you might remember Jesus talking about, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. He talks about your eye. If your eye causes you skin, sin, gouge it out. Better enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than for you to be thrown into hell. That word hell he's using there is the Greek word Gehenna. See, in Gehenna, there was a constant fire burning to get rid of the waste. There were lots of dead bodies there. So you can imagine how gross that would have been. The way that Jesus describes it in Mark 9, 48, he says, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Doesn't that sound like a good place to vacation? This is, he used the word Gehenna because the people that Jesus was talking to, the the people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem, they would have been very familiar with what Gehenna was. They would have known that that's a place that children were sacrificed. They would have known that that's a place where they buried the dead when Babylon invaded. They would have known that that is a place you don't want to go. I wonder if the choices made that that Israel had made to sacrifice and, and to worship the god Molech, I wonder if there's choices in our life that end up making it almost like hell for those around us. Something to think about. So I talked about the the god Molech. He was one of five gods mentioned in these verses in in in, uh, 2 Kings 22. There's a few others he talked about. Some you've probably heard before. Baal. Baal was a really fun one. Asherah. A couple others, Ashtaroth and Chemosh. It's also really fun to say uh, those those are some fun words to say. Anyways, Baal. Who remembers who Baal was? He was the one, remember Elijah on the Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal, and he let them do the sacrifice first all day, and then nothing happened. So then Elijah went up, called down on God, the true God, Yahweh, and fire, right? That same Baal. Why would they worship Baal? Now, Baal was the god of fertility, which is always a good thing. He was the god of rain, which, if you're living in a desert full of mountains, rain is a good thing. He was the god of war. He was the god of the storm, essentially. So he was a pretty big name as far as the worldly gods went. Another one was Asherah. Uh, Asherah was the goddess of motherhood and fertility. There was also Ashtoreth of the Sidonians, the goddess of fertility and war. And then the other two, Chemosh and Molech, they were the national gods of Moab and Ammon. So these were pretty pretty bad, pretty bad gods. And they had all these altars, they had all these idols of these gods that Josiah had to go and 
get rid of. Now, you hopefully saw a, a, a lot of similarities between them. You know, it's fertility, war, rain. These are all, all good things that they try to have. And Josiah would have been familiar with all those idols, right? Because he was the king of Judah, and he knew all those idols were there. The book of the law that was read to him was the book of Deuteronomy. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, if you remember, I had said that there are two chapters on the blessings and curses. And in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, there's a few uh, blessings that, that God lists. And I'm going to quick point them out and see if you can draw any parallels with these gods that the uh, people of Judah had been worshiping. Deuteronomy 28.7 says, The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. Verse 11. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beasts and in the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Verse 12. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. Jump down to verse 14. And do not turn aside from any of the words which I commanded you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. What was it said of King Josiah? It said that he didn't turn to the right or to the left, that he followed God. You notice that these specific blessings that I had just read out are the same things that those gods represented. The rain, the seasons children, war. I wonder if in our lives there's anything we've made sacrifices, anywhere that we've made sacrifices trying to do in our strength what God's already promised us. You see, Josiah doesn't stop there, though. He saw that Judah wasn't too far gone. He knew that they could keep coming back. So he goes one step further. He doesn't just get rid of the evil. He does something that sets him apart. Something that puts him above Hezekiah. He does something that no king had done in 800 years. The Bible says that he then reinstates Passover. You remember what Passover was in the time of Moses, way back when in Egypt, the final plague, remember the 10 plagues of Egypt, final plague was the death of the firstborn, that the angel of death was going to come in and kill the firstborn of anyone who did not have something painted over their door. What was it? Blood, right? The blood of the lamb. How perfect is that picture that Josiah remembered the Passover, that he remembered that the wrath of God would pass over those who are covered by the blood. Is that not the greatest picture of our Lord Jesus? That everything we deserve, everything we should have from even the slightest sin in our life passes over us because of the blood. See, this is where Josiah surpasses Hezekiah. It says that he even was greater than 2 Kings 23, 25, it says, Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. 
and there has never been a king like him since. No one's too far gone. I wonder what people will say about us when they remember us. No one's too far gone. As we close today, I want to talk to three groups of people, if you please stand with me. Three groups of people I want to talk to today. The first, the first group, you're the person, you're on the right path. You've been doing, you've been, you've been following God's plan for your life. You are walking in your calling. I want to encourage you today, stay the course. Keep following after him. If you see others who might be falling away, others who might be struggling, encourage them, lift them up. Remember, we're in this together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's encourage one another. Let's set an example. The second group, maybe you're like Judah. Maybe you're like how I was eight years ago where you had followed God for a while. But at some point, you got off course. At some point, you took the wrong turn. I want to encourage you today that whatever it is that needs to change, whatever it is that you, you need to tear your heart about, I want to encourage you to do it. I have yet in my life to meet someone who at the end of their life, after following God their whole life, said, I wish I hadn't done that. I find it very hard to believe that anyone would regret trusting in God. The third group of people I want to talk to is those who haven't gotten to that point, who haven't made that choice if they were going to follow God or not. Today, I want to I want to give you that opportunity. If you find yourself at that crossroads where maybe you feel like you're too far gone, maybe you feel like you've done something or, or you're coming out of something broken, there's no way that you can be redeemed. I want to tell you today, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what our Lord says, not what God said. What, what did the Bible say? It says that God is merciful. That God is compassionate. God is filled with unfailing love. Just like we were singing this morning, there's no mountain he won't climb up coming after you. There's no wall he won't break down coming after you. No matter how far you think you've gone, you're never too far gone for God. So with every eye closed, with our heads bowed, I want to give that opportunity today. If you want to make that choice, if you want to say, I'm done walking the opposite direction of what I know God has for me. Then on the count of three, I want you to go ahead and raise your hand and we'll pray with you. One, God loves you. He is for you. He's not against you. He has great plans for your life. Two, if you're hesitant, if there's anything holding you back, why are you letting it hold you back anymore? There's so much more that God has for you. So much more that he wants to show you. Three, if that's you today, please raise your hand. for the rest of us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity that we've had to come together to to learn from your word, to hear what your spirit would teach us. God, I ask that as we go about, if we're in that first group of people, God, I ask that you would continue steering us towards that right path. Keep us following you. Keep our hearts tethered to you, God. Keep our eyes fixed on your son. Lord, that in all we say, all we do, all we think that would bring honor and glory 
to you alone. God, if we're in that second group, maybe we've been following you for a while, but we've gotten off course. God, let this day be the moment that we say no more. Let this day be the day that we tear our hearts and come back to you. God, we know that when we repent, that you relent, that you're eager to relent, that you're eager and willing to pour your love and pour your grace on us. God, we thank you for this day. We lift up the rest of this day and this week too, that as we go about our lives, we remember your spirit is with us, that you would go with us wherever we are. We pray to you, Father, we lift it up in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we will have ministers up front.